Hi. Hi. So, um, what's this book about? You didn't read this one either? Well, I was gonna, but I uh, accidentally read something else. What? Vogue. I hated the book. All right? I have no idea what it's about, and the writer was clearly on drugs when he wrote it. I mean, it just, it went on and on and on like it was written in a total hurry. If I handed in something like this, there's no way I'd get a good grade on it. I mean, it's boring and it's unorganized. And I only read 30 pages of it anyway. Well, that was passionate, albeit entirely misinformed. Who dares follow Miss Kelly's lucid analysis? It's required reading. With Tom and Stella. Episode 44, Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver. I was walking down the street today when I thought I heard a tune you used to play and I was swept away. Well, I could have sworn I saw you from the corner of my eye, but it was something familiar about a passerby and I was swept away. Now it seems that everything reminds me of those Hello and welcome to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, a podcast that is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. This podcast is all about books and literature, and each month we take a thorough look at one piece of literature we've both read and determine whether or not it is, well, required reading. I'm Tom Panneries, and as always, along with me through this monthly book club, is the nanny Raleigh to my garnet, <laughs> Stella? That's that is appropriate. Hello. Oh yeah, we are we are clearly <laughs> clearly the two old. That people. is true, and and just the fact that you you know would get annoyed or roll your eyes at me or be like, oh, she's up to her old yeah. shenanigans again. Yeah, that that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. See, I, I can't tell. See, if this were if this were Miami and we were uh, we were living in a house together and and relaxing on the lanai, I'm clearly the Dorothy. I don't know if you're Rose or uh, you're not Blanche. <laughs> Maybe Sophia. I'm not. I'm not sure. Anyway, so how are you? Good. I had a moment of panic about five minutes before this episode started because I couldn't find. I had bookmarked a particularly salacious page for me to read. Mm-hmm during a, a portion of this uh, episode, and I couldn't find it. But I found it, rest assured. <laughs> so I can't okay. wait to read that aloud. Oh, lovely. Okay. <laughs> oh, boy. Okay, uh, yeah, so we are doing... <laughs> There's no way you can't come out of that any better than you. Yeah. I have I have no segue for okay. that. I mean, it's it's... It's it's supposed to be a time of the year where the two of us are actually a lot more relaxed because neither of us is, you know, working at the moment. Um, you know, I'm handling some of the summer summer makeup work for the students who are remote, but this has been this is a very very odd odd end to the school year and um you know, you're at, you're at home waiting for whatever games coming up. <laughs> and um and and I'm I'm at home, you know. My son is at home, but he's not going to camp this summer. Um, I was 
peek behind the curtain. Uh, we were never, if things had gone normally, we would not be recording tonight because I would be on a boat in the Bahamas because uh, I was supposed to be on vacation this week. Um, but that got that got scuttled due to due to the pandemic. And my wife is my wife has actually took actually took the week off uh, because it was just she had to she had to use the vacation time or else she wasn't going to be able to carry it over. And uh, she's working from home as well. So we're all we're all still quarantined in here. Uh, so it's still a little bit weird and, and it's, it's been a little weird, hard for me to kind of get out of like, I have to be doing something work brain, you know, like feeling guilty for, um, you know, sitting down for too long and, and stuff, but I'm, 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 I'm getting there. I'm getting there. <laughs> how about you? Just how is life? Yeah. In general, how are you, how are you dealing with this, uh, yeah. this summer break? Oh, uh, you know, it's, it feels just like a an ongoing from March, to be honest. I mean, I'm really doing the same stuff that I had been doing, reading and watching and going outside for a bit and maybe contacting someone to go on a walk and all of that, you know, digital connections with video. So mm-hmm. it seems like the same. It's just I'm not grading anything. So how much has changed? But, yeah, that game that he said so patronizingly, <laughs> The Last of Us Part Two comes out. Yeah, I mean, we're recording whatever a month in advance, but comes out on Friday. So I'm super pumped about that. I will cease all communications with everybody once that hits. Um, but yeah, other than that, you know, it's fine. It's, it's weird, but, uh, hope to get a job and continue just, uh, enjoying summertime, which is usually, it should be a time of rest and relaxation and Mm -hmm. refreshing. It shouldn't be stressful. So yeah. Oh, cool. I will say, um, just to plug something of both of mine and (gasps) tangentially yours, this episode, uh, here is dropping like the second or third week, second or third, second Tuesday or so July is when I try to drop the episode. So we're, we're in July right now. Uh, if you go over to this month, episode 111 of Pop Culture Affidavit, uh, Stella and I are talking about the Brian K. Vaughn, Cliff Chang comic series Paper Girls in its entirety. Um, we recorded that a while ago, but uh, it was so much fun, and, and I'm really looking forward to that coming out. So after you're done listening to this episode, uh, probably about a week after this drops, if you're if you're listening to this on, on, on the day it was released, uh, go over there and, and listen. Th- that'll be out over on Pop Culture Affidavits. So a little plug for the two of us. Oh, yeah. I know we both had a lot oh, of fun. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and a I generally, I, after each episode, like on this or any other thing, I'm like, oh, man, I, I did a terrible job. But on that one, I thought, I think I did okay on that episode. So, yeah, I'm, yeah. I am I had a lot of fun rereading that in short bursts mm-hmm. uh, in totality as well and then discussing with yeah. you. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. Okay, so uh, our novel this time around is Prodigal Summer by Barbara Kingsolver, and I'm going to go ahead and do what I usually we usually do for this particular segment. I'm going to give you guys some background on who Kingsolver is, her career, etc., and then we'll give you a synopsis of the book. But before we do, uh, what is your history with the book and your history with the author? Yeah, I just have a history with the author. This was the first that I've heard of King Solver, though it seems like she's more of a prolific writer than I had initially thought. But I had accidentally happened upon the Poisonwood Bible 
in a an article on the web that I was reading. And so that interested me. I didn't care for it as much, which I told some colleagues and they were shocked and disappointed <laughs> in me, which, you know, happens sometimes. So I was nervous about, yikes, I didn't like that as much. What is this one going to be like? Which I'll save what my judgment was. So that's my history with her. And Prodigal Summer is completely new for me. Okay. This is my first time of my reading uh, this novel as well. I actually have not read the Poisonwood Bible, and Amanda owned it at, uh, that one at one point, and I think we gave it to we loaned it to somebody. Never. Got back. <laughs> that seems like um, your history with a lot of books that you have. Well, the thing is, it's like I we have we have more books than we have shelf space for books. So when people like want to borrow something, unless it's something that's like really precious to me, um. Like I have a couple of books like a letter like that are signed or something like that, you know. Um, I'll be like, yeah, whatever, you know. <laughs> okay. I could always take this out of the library, or yeah. Things like that, things like that. Unless it's like a graphic novel, I'm very, I'm, I'm a little bit protective of my trades and graphic novels. But if it's just a regular book, so and it's, and we've also un- offloaded books over the years, like you know, we've culled. And, and we did the collection and been like, okay, are we really ever going to read this or is you know, et cetera, et cetera. So. Um, it's likely that happened because, um, you know, Poisonwood was 98. This was 2000. From the time um, of – and I have this in hardcover. This is Amanda's copy, and I have it. It's in hardcover. So we got it. She got it when it came out uh, in 2000. So that's 20 years. And in 20 years, we moved um, like three or four times. So, you know, it's you, – you, you offload things as you – as you decide to, to pull up stakes and decide to not like, you know, have to pack yet another box in the moving truck. Um, I had heard of King Silver, uh, mainly because I was assigned the novel animal dreams in a fiction writing class in college. Uh, really remember really, really enjoying it, but this was 1997, 98, I think when I was, when I read that. So that's been a very long time. The bean trees is on the AP Lang, um, 11th grade AP language, uh, reading list at the high school where I teach, but I've never actually read that one. Been like I said, this has been sitting on the shelf in my office for 20 years and it was on my Goodreads want to read list. And I figured, Hey, this episode's coming out in summer. So. Let's be seasonal. <laughs> so that was really the motivation. Beside uh, beside the fact that it was on my re- to read list, so I was like, okay, I can knock another one off my to read list, and it was uh, it was seasonal. So that's why I chose it. So let's get into who Barbara King Solver actually is. She was born in Annapolis, Maryland, in 1955, and she grew up in Carlisle, Kentucky. When she was seven years old, her father, a physician, took the family to Leopoldville, Congo, which is now Kinshasa. Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I should say that I cribbed this from Wikipedia, by the way. Her parents worked in a public health capacity. The family lived without electricity or running water. After graduating from high school, she attended DuPont University studying classical piano, but she eventually changed her major to biology and graduated Phi Beta Kappa with a Bachelor of Science in 1977. After college, she moved to France for a year before settling in Tucson, where she lived most for most of the next two decades. In 1980, she enrolled in graduate school at the University of Arizona, where she earned a master's in ecology and evolutionary biology. King Solver began her full-time writing career in the mid-1980s as a science writer for the university, which eventually led to some freelance feature writing, including many cover stories for the local alternative weekly, the Tucson Weekly. 
She began her career in fiction writing after winning a short story contest in a local Phoenix newspaper. In 1985, she married Joseph Hoffman. Their daughter, Camille, was born in 1987. She and her daughter moved to Tenerife. Tenerife in the Canary Islands for a year during the first Gulf War, so this would have been 91, mostly due to frustration over America's military involvement. After returning to the United States in 92, she separated from her husband. In 94, she was awarded an honorary doctorate of letters from her alma mater, DePaul University. In the same year, she married Stephen Hopp, an ornithologist, and their daughter, Lily, was born in 1996. In 2004, King Solver moved with her family to a farm in Washington County, Virginia, which is where they currently reside. In 2008, she received an honorary doctorate of humane letters from Duke, where she delivered a commencement address titled How to Be Hopeful. King Solver's first novel, The Bean Trees, was published in 1988. Her next work of fiction, published in 1990, was Homeland and Other Stories, a collection of short stories on a variety of topics exploring various themes from the evolution of cultural and ancestral lands to the struggles of marriage. The novel Animal Dreams, which I mentioned I read in college, was published in 1990. This was followed by Pigs in Heaven, which is the sequel to The Bean Trees in 1993. The Poisonwood Bible, which you mentioned, was published in 98. She followed up that novel with the one we'll be talking about, which is Prodigal Summer in 2000. Since then, King Solver published The Lac. Lacuna, Lacuna in 2009, Flight Behavior in 2012, which is sitting on my Kindle as we speak, and Unsheltered in 2018. King Solver is also a published poet and essayist. Two of her essay collections, High Tide in Tucson and Small Wonder, have been published, and an anthology of her poetry was published in 1998 under the title Another America. Her essay, Where to Begin, appears in the anthology Knitting Yarns, Writers on Knitting. Her prose poetry also accompanied photographs by Annie Griffiths Belt in a 2002 work entitled Last Stand, America's Virgin Lands. Her major nonfiction works include her 1990 publication Holding the Line, Women in the Great Arizona Mine Strike of 1983, and 2007's Animal Vegetable Miracle. A description of eating locally. Um, that I've actually read, by the way. I forgot to mention that in our in our lead up. Um, it is the story of how she moved, she and her family moved to Washington County, Virginia, on the farm, and for the entire year, with the exception of certain things that they could not get locally, they either bought everything locally or or grew and raised their and ate their own food. So they were like completely as self-sustainable as they could, and it's it's a fascinating work in the local food movement. And I believe that in uh, sometime in the in the past decade, when, it, when there was a, a another edition where she kind of did an update, because the local food movement has grown substantially since 2007. But it's a really really good book. It's a little dry in places, but it's a really really good book, and I would recommend it. All right, she's also been published as a science journalist in periodicals such as Economic Botany on topics such as desert plants and bioresources. King Solver has received a number of awards and honors. In 2000, she was awarded the National Humanities Medal by by Bill Clinton. The Poisonwood Bible was chosen as an Oprah's Book Club selection, and it won the National Book Prize of South Africa. It was also shortlisted for both the Pulitzer and the Penn Faulkner Award. The Lacuna won the... 
2010 Orange Prize for Fiction. She is a James Beard Award winner. She has won the Los Angeles Times Book Prize, the Edward Abbey Echo Fiction Award, the Physicians for Social Responsibility National Award, the Arizona Civil Liberties Union Award. In 2011, she was awarded the Dayton Literary Peace Prize, uh, Richard C. Holbrook Distinguished Achievement Award. In 2014, she was awarded the Lifetime Achievement Award by the Library of Virginia. In 2018, the Library of Virginia named her one of the Virginia Women in History. She also started her own literary award. This is really fascinating. In 2000, King Solver established the Bellwether Prize for Fiction. Named for the Bellwether, the literary prize is intended to support writers whose unpublished works support positive social change. The Bellwether Prize is awarded in even-numbered years and includes guaranteed major publication and a cash prize of $25,000, fully funded by Kingsolver. She has stated that she wanted to create a literary prize to, quote, encourage writers, publishers, and readers to consider how fiction engages visions of social change and human justice. In 2011, the Penn American Center announced it took over the administration of the prize, and it's now the Penn Bellwether Prize for Socially Engaged Fiction. And finally, in the bio, which is a bit of a long bio, but she's a fascinating writer here, a bit of trivia. In the late 90s, she was a founding member of the Rock Bottom Remainders. Oh, is- you know who else is in there? <laughs> Stephen King. Yeah, and Amy Tan, because uh, I'm reading her like book of memoir essays, and she oh, really? talks about that. And I thought, Barbara Kingsolver, mm. there you are. Yeah, um, Amy, uh, other band members have included uh, Amy Tan, Stephen King, Matt Groening, mm-hmm. who is known for creating The Simpsons, and Dave Barry. So that's, uh, she, uh, they play once, for one week during the year, she played the keyboard. She's actually no longer an active member, but I think that's pretty cool. Okay, so, uh, here is the synopsis of uh, Prodigal Summer. Um, I did, I did take, I, credit to it, there, uh, Google search for leading me to a site called Book Rags. Mm-hmm. Um, I cribbed the, I copy and pasted it and I edited. So I cribbed the uh, summary here from there. I, I added to it and, and, and streamlined some of it, but did want to cite my sources. Prodigal Summer is a novel about members of a community in Zebulon County, Virginia, a fictitious county in Appalachia. And a quick aside here, I grew up on Long Island. Long Island technically has four counties, but Queens and Kings County, which is uh, Brooklyn, are now boroughs in New York City. So, so they, when you talk about Long Island, they don't really count, even though they're technically on the island that is Long Island. But what we call Long Island is Nassau County and Suffolk County. Referring to yourself as from a county is something I had to get used to when I moved down to um, D.C. and then, of course, like, you know, the Charlottesville area here because, you know, I taught up in Greene County and there's Albemarle County and it's like people talk about being from Greene County. And I'm like, I don't really talk about being from Suffolk County. I talk about being from Sayville, which is the town where I grew up and et cetera. So just kind of one of those weird, like, little regional identity things. Um, Anyway. I digress. Back to this. Throughout the novel, King Solver specifically focuses on the lives of Deanna Wolf, Lucy Landowski, and Gar- Garnett Walker. These main characters are introverted and solitary individuals who have unique and strong views about their natural surroundings. The book takes place over the course of a spring and summer, and there really are three separate stories with a bit of connected tissue, and that connected tissue is teased out as we go through the book. 
that connected tissue is, or at least some of it is, that Deanna's father is the father of Nanny Raleigh's daughter. Now, Nanny Raleigh is uh, the other main character in Garnett's story. Garnett is the grandfather to the children that Lusa will adopt at the end of the novel. Lusa also winds up raising goats on the farm where she's living, and those are easy to acquire because years before, Garnett has encouraged, had encouraged his former students to raise them. And they kind of overpopulated, and everybody just wanted to get rid of the goats. So they're like, yeah, you can have them for cheap. And while this is not a familiar relationship, both uh, Deanna and Lusa care about the coyotes that live up on the mountain. Um, and in fact, at one point, Lusa does mention hearing about the woman who's living up on the mountain, which is Deanna. But uh, there is no scene toward the end. We'll talk about this in our discussion. There's no scene toward the end where there's like some sort of climactic moment where all the stories converge, which tends to happen in novels where there are three separate threads, um, but nothing no, nothing is really brought like that together and, and wrapped up in that much of a package at the end. So just... Um, and what King Solver does with the narration is that she jumps back and forth between all three stories throughout the novel. Uh, she gives each of those stories the specific names. Uh, Deanna's is called Predators. Luce's is called Moth Love. Garnett's is called Old Chestnuts. Uh, for the sake of clarity, I'm going to talk about each story separately. So we'll start with Deanna. Uh, Deanna's story begins with her life in the Zebulon National Forest as a forest ranger. She has had this career for two years and created the job herself through her college thesis on protecting wildlife, specifically coyotes. Her peaceful solitude is disturbed by the appearance of Eddie Bondo, a hunter-slash-sheep farmer from Wyoming, who becomes her lover, living with her for the summer. Although there is a strong attraction between them, their beliefs about protecting species, predators in particular, are actually vastly different. Much of their dialogue consists of discussions and argument about the relationship between humans and other wildlife, which is also shown through her fixation on those coyotes in the forest, as well as the birds on her porch and the snake living in her attic. Their story ends with him leaving her as well as the coyotes alone, despite the fact that he does get her pregnant. He leaves her with a note that says he has met his match. In her final days on the mountain, she realizes how faulty the belief in solitude is because all creatures are connected, and she heads back to civilization to live with her father's former girlfriend, Nanny Rawlings, to, to raise her child. Lusa is an entomologist from Lexington who is lonely in her new home and marriage. She and her husband frequently argue, her husband's name is Cole Widener, by the way. And she feels like an outsider in his family's home and the community, since they are essentially living in his childhood house. Soon as her story, Cole, her husband, is killed in an automobile accident, and she spends the rest of the book dealing with his death and his family. Cole was the only male child, and he has four sisters, the oldest of which is Mary Edna, who is pretty much her main antagonist. She struggles to find her place in the small community in Zebulon County, insisting on staying and keeping up the farm instead of selling it and heading back to Lexington. Throughout the summer, she gets close to Rick, who is her nephew, and is able to make the farm sustainable by not just tending various vegetables, but raising goats to sell for their meat to butchers she knows in various cities. While doing so, she learns about her husband and pieces together Cole's life through a string of stories that also tell the history of the entire Widener family. She eventually bonds with her dying sister-in-law, Jules' children. She prepares to adopt them. 
By the end of the novel, Lusa has changed her last name from Lewandowski to Widener. She has a place in the family, and that's demonstrated through her raising those children and holding on to the farm. Finally, Garnett is an elderly widower and a retired teacher living in solitude in the home on which he had grown up. He spends his days mulling over the difficulties of his neighbor, Nanny Raleigh, and those difficulties that she causes him. He grows some produce, as well as his beloved chestnut trees, which he is trying to crossbreed in an effort to create an American chestnut tree that is resistant to a blight that wiped them all out decades earlier. Uh, and then there's a whole detail in there that the Forest Service or the county or somebody bulldozing the rest of them as an ironic way of just saving them or saving the wood or something. Uh, Garnett believes that pesticides are the only way to protect his crops and trees, which is in complete opposition with Nanny's organic methods. They spend much of Garnett's story bickering over the relationship between man and nature and over their relationship to each other um, and how to work in harmony with nature. But by the end of the story, they have found a mutual affection for one another in their old age. The final chapter of the novel is different from all the other chapters. It is from the perspective of the coyote. This coyote travels through the valley and back up the mountain. It hints at the growth of her family and the new families that are arriving. So that is, and and there's a lot more detail to this novel. I was just trying to keep it um, succinct. Uh, but before we get into our discussion, there's a question that we always like about to ask about this novel, and that is, did you like it? Here we go, listeners. Tommy may want to go off mic or away for a time. I promised Tom I would only harass him about this one time during this show, and it is now. So I like to somewhat be prepared in what I'm reading, and I went in with this idea of what I was going to read, but boy was I shocked when there were some romantic elements inserted into this book. And of all the people on this show, there are only two of us, who would have chosen a quasi-romance novel, everyone would have said it's going to be Stella. But it was Tom. But it was Tom. Now, I text Tom, because the first interaction between Deanna and uh, Eddie, I thought, Oh boy, I'm reading a romance novel, and he said, "Is Fabio on the cover?" And I thought, "Well, he's not." But that those aren't all romance novels. So, listeners, I will say that romance is an aspect of this novel, and I also realize I'm not answering the "Did you like it or not?" But as proof, proof that there are romantic moments in this novel, I have bookmarked a salacious page. Here we go. <clears throat> It's page 96 on my Kindle. Uh, Eddie says, well, now, pretty lady, does that mean you're off duty? And now <laughs> I can barely read this. Okay, hold on. Shh. She caught her breath, wondering at his power to manipulate her desire. She wanted to stop and tear him apart on the trail, swallow him alive, suck his juices, and lick him from her fingers. Uh, I mean, I, I could go on, but I just want to say that it was not I who picked a romance. And I guess we could, you know, kind of discuss or debate about Hunger Games. There's romantic aspects in there. But boy, this one, boy, this one. But anyways, the answer to your question, Tom, whether I liked it or not, he was shuffling papers because he's nervous, is that I did, in fact, like it. And I will forever remember that you chose this one. You know, it's um, it it's 
salacious in parts, but it's not vulgar. Oh, no. I, no. There's a scene in Animal Dreams. I remember it distinctly because the two characters are about to, to, to have sex and the, the main character says something about like asks um, asks him if it was like a if if that's a you know if that she feels something in his pocket she says is that a condom in your pocket and um, and the next sentence is it was and then there's a break and then they just go to the next scene and we look I remember looking at that line in fiction class because we talked about how like sometimes stating something like that very simply is a really, really effective way to get the scene across because the mind will fill in the blanks, you know, and you don't have to go full, you know, porno description of, of the sex. Um, this is a little more descriptive in places, uh, definitely, but yeah, it was, uh, it is, but at the same time, uh, this is something I'll bring up too. I, I really, I really like it because it, it, that fit with the way like the rest of the story was written. It didn't like, um, it didn't take me out of the story, it, you know, the, the the romance, the romantic parts of it, and and the kind of very, uh, you know, especially between those two characters, um, you know, was took me by surprise a little bit as well. But she's so good with establishing a mood to the whole piece and the image of the whole of the whole piece that um, that I thought it was really really good. But I, I like this as well. This is going to sound weird. It felt like summer, like it felt it has this sort of lazy pace to it. In places that felt like a very hot summer day in, por- in portions and things like that, I could I could kind of feel this novel in that way. Anyway, well, I'm glad you feel unashamed that you picked a romance novel. Oh no! <laughs> God, we're I mean we read we read one of the um, one of the least vulgar Stephen King books. <laughs> Oh, that's time. yeah, probably. He's got, yeah, yeah. I mean, we're never going to cover it, um, but whew, that's got a scene. Um, <laughs> I know exactly what you're whoa. talking about. Yes, you do. Um, anyway, so let's let's go ahead and get into this book. Uh, we probably should start by breaking down the title itself um, because it is a uh, it is a play on. The uh, or at least most people will see that and be like, "Oh, this has something to do with," or it's a play off of the phrase "the prodigal son," which is a very famous story from the New Testament. The dictionary definitions of prodigal, though, by the way, I just wanted to bring this up because beyond just you know the the definition of somebody who returns after a long absence is characterized by profuse or wasteful expenditure. Recklessly spendthrift, yielding abundantly, or someone who returns after a long absence. So that last definition, of course, is what we often refer to, uh, or often think of, because we think of the prodigal son being this, you know, the story that a lot of people, especially people who were raised in, um, you know, the, the, the any Christian uh, denomination, were probably aware of. How do the three main characters of Deanna, Lusa, and Garnett fit into those definitions of prodigal? Uh, um, I feel you know my knee jerk is to always go for the the biblical definition, mm-hmm. and I think it is this idea of them coming home somehow, <clears throat> even though Lusa is just there. 
she she doesn't leave where she is. But I feel like she comes home because she reconciles her situation. I think she finds comfort and comfortability. Wait, comf- is that even a word? Uh, she feels like this is her place now. She has those kids. You have Deanna that comes out of the woods. You know, that one's more of a, I feel like a, a real literal one. And, and she comes down to Nanny, whom about whom yeah. she's, she's spoken. And then you have, um, I've forgotten his name. Thank you. You have Garnett. (laughs) What does she call him? Like, uh, something old fart. I can't remember. But, uh, anyways, he's, yeah, he kind of an angry old man. I feel like with him, not only similar to Lusa, getting on better terms and just even getting with any terms with his neighbor because he's hated her for years, apparently. He got the goats to spite her, which I thought was hilarious. But finding out that there are two of his trees in the back of Nanny's property, like being able to come back to that and that that's something that he has been trying for Mm -hmm. so long. So I feel like it is a return to something in uh either their their current situation or literally packing up and leaving somewhere. Yeah, and I got that I got that as well. I was trying to think of anybody who is is really wasteful in this particular um or recklessly spendthrift uh which is which harkens back to another work that we did uh a while ago which was a doll's house because at one point um Toward the beginning of the, of the play, Torvald refers to Nora as a prodigal, or at least in one of the translations he does. But I don't think anybody really is wasteful um, in in that particular way, uh, because they all seem to be they all seem to be about preserving something or bringing something mm-hmm. back. Um, and uh, and you're right, it does. And 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 I think. Uh, my mind went right to the prodigal son as well. I just wanted to make sure that I, you know, if I, I hadn't missed anything as far as the other definitions, no. um, because the prodigal son is probably like, along with what like is along with what like the good Samaritan is probably like one of the two most well-known parables. Yeah. Um. So that that even even somebody who is not very well versed in terms of scripture is might know that might know that reference yeah. or story it's it's and all those characters comedy. are so i mean even the side characters are the opposite of being wasteful just i mean you see mm-hmm. the scenes where lusa is gathering all those beans like an abundance of beans um you have nanny that is a you know doesn't want to lose anything is trying to save um the well i mean she doesn't want any of the 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 Gosh, I'm sorry, the words. Um, she doesn't want Garnett to use the stuff that would actually destroy some of the, the, this is so vague, the things that are on her property. Yeah, like she, she, he doesn't want him to, he, she doesn't want him to use pesticides. Yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, and, and then you have Deanna yeah. who, um, feel, yeah, doesn't want to waste nature and, and preserve that no matter what, even though it, it sometimes betrays her, like the snake in the in the roof. Yeah, because she's very in tune to um, <clears throat> she is very in tune to the natural order and cycle of things, and she's trying her best to limit her footprint in that um, in that particular area. 
Yeah, well, and it also is this, uh, and you know, we'll get to the we'll get to the setting as well. But it's also a community that is very, um, it's a rural, working class community that, um, in some cases, is I don't want to know if poor is the right word, but they're not. Um, these aren't people who are well off, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cole, Cole died because even though they were, they had inherited the family farm and they were working the family farm, he was supplement, he had to supplement his inc- income, I believe, by, by, by be, being a truck driver. So he was, he died on a job or whatever, or he was, he was working somewhere else to, to supplement the money. So, um, they were, and the fact that Lisa Ken comes up with, you know, the idea at the end for the goats and everything, it's, um, it has, it actually, it, it saves the farm essentially, but even she knows that it's such a cyclical thing that the happy ending will only last so long. She has to make sure that she can sustain it. So there, there is that, that like, you know, nobody, um, that they know the value of these things because they know they shouldn't be wasteful. Um, now we've got three plots and three protagonists and they really aren't connected to one another. Um, it wasn't as I was coming to the end of the book or at least the last maybe 75, 50, 75 pages that I realized that we're not going to get the scene where everybody is drawn together in one big climactic moment, which is what we tend to get sometimes in novels, definitely in movies, there are some movies where there are like you know plots of and characters that are tangentially related to one another one another but they're all heading toward the same exact place at the end of the film and everything you know comes together and whatever is going on uh we don't get that we have those connections those familial connections and everything why keep that separation why not bring everybody together at the end <laughs> or why not connect them why not connect them more closely or see them interact more closely have them intersect more yeah i I think that's what everyone probably wanted i mean i enjoyed those small moments where you find things out and it might be really vague at first like realizing that garnet is actually related to lusa by the Uh loosest of terms i suppose because they're kind of in-laws and in-laws yeah yeah, and people, different people knowing each other and that the nanny that we are reading about is the same one that Deanna's talking about, all of that stuff. So I think those are great connections. But I also think that King Silver might not necessarily want their stories to be muddied by interacting with each other because then one person's story, like Luce's story, then becomes Deanna's story. Like they're all mixed up. And I think maybe she wanted to keep them as separate as they could be and have them as this own person with their own agency. But there are those little moments where there there's an intersecting idea or a person that they have in common. Yeah, I agree with you. And I, I think it's also that the, the setting in this book is really, really limited. Mm-hmm. You know, in Deanna's thing, it really is just the house and the woods surrounding the house up on the mountain. In Luce's case, it's pretty much the farm, you know, and Garnett, I think there's a couple of stops along it, like a rest, a diner or a store to pick something up. But for the most part, it's confined to this one, like, area, uh, you know, like a mountain valley area or whatever in, in this county. And even within the county, it's confined to this area, like where they're, you know, where they're, where they're all near each other. So I think the setting itself 
kind of becomes a character on its own, or Appalach or Appal Appalachia, Appalachia. I have never I been able to pronounce Asia. that correctly. Yeah, um, and and I and I was trying to pinpoint where this is. I think we're talking like because they they make references to Roanoke, so I'm thinking like further south, like southwest of yeah. here, um, probably on the other side of the Blue Ridge. Um, so we're on the we're on the eastern side of the Blue Ridge. So I would say on the western side of the Blue Ridge, closer to so where there's fair enough access to both West Virginia, Tennessee, and Kentucky, like you know, kind of kind of pot in that pocket uh, of the uh, of the of the state. Um, I, so I think I think she sets up I think she sets up the area itself as a character. Do you think it's a static or a dynamic character? this this place where they're living i think the time bubble that we are currently reading it it is static Mm -hmm. but the but if you look at i guess the future and then the past as told through the characters and then of course as the characters live on this land you know it starts to change then i think it's dynamic because obviously the the coal the widener farm that Lucy is staying on has changed since before she was actually brought on there and then the mountain has changed as um Deanna has been there because I think she said something along the lines of there has been more life there now because she's there to protect it and she she mm-hmm. brushes people off and tells them to go away. And then with Garnet, you have he had all of these trees and now he doesn't. So I feel like in the scheme of its whole history, it is dynamic. But I think in what we're looking at with this summer, it seems like maybe it, it for me, it seems static, but the characters are are the ones changing in the background? Uh, I th- I agree with you. I think that um, that it's a subtle, uh, subtle like dynamism to the to the setting. That the setting is always a con- is a constant for all these people and the people in the area, and and nature and the setting are a constant in itself. And yet, at the same time, you're right. Either the change is very, you know, it's evolutionary and it's slow and, and you know, it, it does tend to be that way. But at the same time, it does, it adapts with people around it. And it, um, it, the, we, we really, I think we really do see the interaction between, uh, you know, these people who are changed, changing and changed and, and the, and the surrounding area, which, uh, which, you know, in, in certain bursts does change, but you're right. It, it stays the same. So they, they learn to live with it and, um, I think it was one of the things I said. Like I said, it felt like summer. You could really feel this novel in that way. And I think the setting, uh, the amount of detail she plays, pays attention to that, and the way she sets the mood, um, really, really help. And um, you know, just kind of a softball question here: like, how do each of these characters feel like outsiders? <laughs> They're not all outsiders. You know, Deanna grew up there. Garnett was a not only grew up there, but he was a teacher there, and he's in his 80s, I believe. But yet they all feel like outsiders in some way or another. How does she just make them distinct in the way they are out? Yeah, I think it's really people's perceptions of them and that mm-hmm. they might just be living their life and, and to them they shouldn't feel like an outsider, but it's just how people are treating them. I mean, I, I think a lot of people think that Garnet is a curmudgeon old man and there's that woman at 
whatever store that is that will talk badly about him. And yeah. uh, with Deanna, I think it seems like the marriage after like leaving or end. I don't know. I guess it was divorce. That sort of put her in a in a weird. I feel like it was freeing for her probably, but I think that took her out of what we would consider civilization and then put her up there. And now she's this mm. legend of the Wolf Woman or something weird like that, which continues With the witch who lives in the house. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> which continues on to the very end because Nanny, I remember, was so excited that she said, I, "Well, I, I guess Garnet was saying, well, you know how she got that way." And Nanny was it said something like, "I don't care if a mountain lion." and knocked her up or whatever which I thought was a lot of fun and then with Lusa I mean from the very beginning of this relationship I think with Cole and first meeting his family such an outsider never really forgot that she was quote unquote from the city which is Lexington which I was trying to figure out if it was Lexington Kentucky or Lexington Virginia so I'm going to assume it's Virginia but there were just some but didn't he go to didn't they mention KU which I, I think so, but yeah, that's in – is that in Louisville? Yeah, so I don't know. But anyways, uh, so she was, yeah, the perpetual outsider. But I feel like as time goes on and we grow to understand them, they start to be brought more into the fold, especially with Lusa, because I think there was just this huge misunderstanding and then she got closer to all the family, which is great. But I, I think Kingsolver does it almost with their appreciation of nature. I think that another huge character to play in this novel is nature. And I I would love to ask this woman how much research she did because, boy, it it's read like I was reading some sort of – Natural uh, National Geographic or, or some sort of thesis mm-hmm. or something like that. But I feel like because these characters have a unique connection to nature, they have a very particular knowledge base. Like Deanna had her thesis with coyotes, which was brought up. Lusa has her moths and bugs in general, mm-hmm. and then Garnet has those trees that people kind of see them as the other. So they're what perceived as odd, whereas, you know, you and I, because we're nerds, we find that fascinating that everyone should have their little yeah. niche and everything. So I think that might also be a way that King Solver is able, besides situational, it's it's what they're in love with and, and their kind of hobby, if I were to dumb it down. Yeah, and and I mean the the moth stuff and some of the other stuff ties into uh, King Solver's background because she does have a master's. Oh, in okay. So, so it tracks with with who she is. Um, although it does remind me of there's a great essay by uh, Julia Alvarez called Grounds for Fiction where she goes through like all the ways in which she does research for writing fiction and all the little things she saves and stuff like that. So, um, and that and it's, it's someone who's written crappy fiction but does does enjoy fiction. I I am I am like kind of like you were where where like you you find out something and you do that deep dive into it and you just want to find out more of that natural curiosity over and you do kind of collect you know what you can find out about it um so so I also like really appreciate the work and research she did to put into this to make it you know grounded in a real you know scientific background etc especially with like Lusa and the moths and and all the different things and um and what I find um you know interesting is like yeah they are they are all outsiders in their own way, but at the, and Lucy being the most obvious one, we'll get to the in-laws in, in a few minutes. But with all the little things they're doing, it, it's it's kind of ironic that 
it seems what they're doing is counter to what's expected of them in that mm-hmm. area. In that, you know, Lusa, I believe, and I believe the motivation between behind her turning it into a goat farm is that um, obviously to make to make the money because she needs to make the money to you know to essentially pay the bills, save the farm. Is that I believe she's half Muslim, like one of her parents is Muslim, and and she knows a lot of Palestinian, um, I guess, does, Palestinians it, yeah. or something. She she knows a lot of people who are butchers who would take the goat, right? And that's so she basically works her connections as an outsider to do this, but it's not what the people would expect. So there's what the people would expect and what nature would expect, and like you know, people would look at Garnett with like, why do you care about these trees? They were all wiped out, and 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 Deanna is protecting coyote when the people in the area be like, no, you got to hunt them coyotes, you know, and, <laughs> and and stuff like that. But at the same time, they're almost like they're not they're, – they're, it seems like they're upsetting the natural order of things as far as what society or what the community would say. But in, in an ironic way, they're actually working with nature to somehow preserve it or bring it back. So I, I like that, um, that juxtaposition and I like that tension. Um, as subtle as it can be sometimes between them and the, the, the natural world and them and the world in which they're, they're living. So, but, but with Deanna and the coyotes, uh, like she's, per- she has a constant debate with Eddie about killing the coyotes. Cause he's like, you know, because like to, to them and to a lot of people and in general, coyotes are a nuisance. They breed like crazy. They come in. They kill small animals, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, because they're predators. Um, and she's like, no. And not only that, she goes as far as protecting them. Like she, there's one point at which she follows like the mother to the mm-hmm. den, and like she kind of sneaks up to just check to see if the babies are. And like, it, it's it's a really really well written scene. But she's so protective of the predators that there's a snake living in the attic, and the snake eats the birds that she was trying to care for. Is she? What is she learning about motherhood? What is she learning about caring? Cause, you know, she does get pregnant at the end. <laughs> what lesson is she learning through through all Gosh. of this? Let me just say that that whole pregnancy thing. I thought it was the first time she said something about she was feeling weird or tired. Maybe I don't. Know. I was like, okay, she's pregnant, and but it I it went on for so long, and she thought it was menopause. I thought there's no way, and then all of a sudden she realizes. Yeah, well, she she's not she's not she's not young. No, she's, she's yeah close to fifth. Cause yeah, she's about twenty yeah. plus older than Eddie. Yeah, so she's in her forties, which is not unheard of of people having children in their forties, but it's also the start of on the early um, stages of menopause, where like you know your cycle gets all messed up, and you know so there's there's a lot of things that go on. Um, yeah. In a, in a woman's in a woman's body for reproductive and things like that, so it is harder to get pregnant at that age. But when she started, when like the first, you're right, the first time I mentioned it, I'm like, oh, she's pregnant. <laughs> I mean, instinctively, I went there, which was interesting yeah. because, well, I read another romance novel, but I won't talk about it here. But it just seems like of of the one person who would probably be most in tune with, you know, mating seasons and things like that and, and understanding. But, you know, I guess she didn't. Now, she also grew out her hair and didn't really care about such things. Yeah. And she didn't have a mother, which I think was the key thing that I, mm-hmm. I think there's even this section where she is musing on the fact that she did not have a mother to talk about particular things. And Nanny was the closest she had, but she didn't really have her, I think, for formative years. And Nanny was occupied with Rachel, her daughter who had Down syndrome. 
So, yeah. So what lessons, I guess, will she use for for motherhood potentially? I I think it's probably the protection. I mean, I remember the the bird scene. She kept mm-hmm. there were two times, I guess one of them she and Eddie disturbed in. And I think that group died because I guess this type of bird leaves and then cannot see yeah. at night and then the, the children starve. And so the second time that that bird had roosted there, she they were very protective over that and like, let's not have this happen again. And then, of course, you know, the snakes. So I think while she absolutely hated the snake at that moment, she was also the one who was protecting the snake from Eddie. And I think she realized, you know, life cycles and, and all of that stuff. But she is going to be that mother bird and, and protect as much as possible. So I feel like living in the woods has taught her things. Seeing the two coyotes who were sisters, I think had taught her stuff, just how to protect them. And yeah, I guess protection would be the, the number one thing that I would see, which is true. I mean, I don't have kids, but I just think about, you know, you put the little plugs in the sockets and you like put them in little closed-in areas so they can't waddle around somewhere. So it's all about protecting your child. Don't want things in their mouth, that kind of stuff. And yeah. uh, so I, I feel like that's the, the number one thing. And, and people say that mothering instincts like kick in automatically so i feel like it'll just be heightened because of her experience in the woods in the mountains yeah and i think that her coming off of the mountain to go live with nanny raleigh is a form of protection is a form of nurturing because she knows that um you know her son or daughter has to be raised uh, in, in civilization, yeah. so to speak. Like you know, and and it, I'm not being flipped by saying, oh, like, she can't leave, watch, raise these kids in the wild. But um, the the idea of having a support net and a family with you it can be very, very important when you're when you're talking about um, raising, you know, raising yeah. a baby and things. And uh, so she, yeah, I think, I think you're right. Um, and I feel like I honestly, when I think about Deanna, I feel like after a certain time, she'll go back up there, but I cannot see, mm-hmm. I mean, it's been done, but having her alone in that cabin, giving birth, that is the thing that horrifies yeah. me. And I think that is one of the main reasons of like being with nanny and nanny will help guide her in the yeah. beginning. But then she's like, yeah, I'm going to take my daughter or son back up there. And the formative years will be up there in that cabin. Yeah, I think I think she knows somewhere in the back of her mind that she'll she'll do it when it's mm-hmm. right and when they're ready for it, as opposed to being you know as opposed to being something that's like completely outlandish and like crazy to do. Um, I did appreciate the irony of her taking a while to realize that she was <laughs> pregnant because she was so hyper focused yeah, on all the other things. Yep. Um, you know, uh, but then again, you're right. She talked about her age for so much for so much of it that um that you did assume that she you you kind of also assumed up until that one point where you figured it out and i think king solver meant for us to figure it out first <laughs> uh that that she was going you would have been like if she was going through menopause you would have been like okay so this is some sort of search for for something um I, you know i i'm i'm not <laughs> shocking i'm not a woman <gasps> um so i don't have the the necessary empathy perspective that i have but i do appreciate seeing women writing women mm. and women writing a 
adult women in this way um because you know we've we've read you know we've all read so many women written by men that are either subject to the male gaze so to speak or the men just basically write men but give them a female name you know like there are so many badly written women i think there's like a whole instagram or twitter feed about like male authors writing women and like how badly they phrase things and i and I, I appreciate having this novel and King Solver because I f- it feels very real to me. Um, and, and these people feel very real and, and, and what they go through do. And it's, she's, it feels like she's writing from a place of understanding. So to, just to kind of finish up the, the, a little bit of our discussion here about Deanna, she and Eddie have this relationship. Uh, it ends after he leaves her. He, he, he ghosts her basically. Ghosts are kind of a thing that pops up in this book, by the way. Um, in a sense, but, but he, he leaves her now. I think we're supposed to assume that he didn't know that she was pregnant. Um, do you think he did know when he, that's why he left? I mean, like, we're talking you know, about how Eddie? Was he, yeah, Eddie. So we're, you know, how, how did the, did relationship, did the relationship change either of them, both of them? Should she have outright, should we have had a scene where he, she told him, did he know and left anyway? You know, what, what do you, what do you make of all of, all of that uh, in their relationship. It's it's interesting. It's, I mean, all three of these portions have conflict romance in it. And I I can't put my finger necessarily on the Garnet and Nanny situation, but definitely conflict. Mm -hmm. And, this one, it, it's almost like, gosh, what, what is that? She's yelling at it. It seemed pretty toxic to, in my opinion. And you're mm-hmm. in this yeah. enclosed area and they seem to have lots of fights. And I guess they have, I don't know if they really talk normally or not. It's, it's hard to tell. But anyways, I, let's see. The first question, did he know that she was pregnant? He's, well, I guess close to, he's mid twenties, mid or late twenties. If she yeah. was confused, then he may have been confused. And it depends on how much, cause it seems like she may not have changed too much. Like that scene where mm. she was on the rock, suddenly she wasn't able to button her, her pants. So perhaps not. Um, did they change each other in any way or did they change in that? Yes, I think with Deanna, number one, she let him keep coming back, which I think is something that mm-hmm. was unheard of for her. Also, she let him on her mountain in certain respects. Uh, he, she wouldn't have wanted him to go to the coyote den, for instance, but just allowing him to wander around, I think, was a big step for her. And with him, I think that note at the end that he left her, which was sad when she ripped it up that I it's hard for a man to admit he's met his equal, I think it was. Yeah, I believe or his match so. or something like that. And I I think that was huge. I think he's not necessarily completely turned over to the coyote side, but he did read which that was actually disappointing, but I guess maybe King Solver did that on purpose because there's that scene where she is off, Deanna's off, and he's reading her thesis, and there's nothing after that. She's really mm-hmm. nervous about him reading her thesis, but there's nothing and and maybe that's on purpose so that we don't know how how he thinks. I don't think he completely has turned over into the pro coyote side but i think he at least better understands because there was that whole question of and i think this really happened throughout all three this arc of sometimes 
if you destroy something, it makes other things worse. And so we, letting things go, actually, the natural order of things, it's it's much better in the long run. And that was true of coyotes as per her her thesis. So I think maybe he grew closer towards understanding, but not necessarily turning pro coyote. Um, it, yeah, it's a, it's an interesting relationship. I, I think it was just meant to be for that summer. I don't know. I mean, I could kind of foresee maybe there's some nostalgia years later and he comes back and there's a child in the cabin. <laughs> Whoopsies. But other than that, I mean, I don't, he, she doesn't need him really. I think, um, sexually, I think there was some like that excerpt that I read, you know, clearly being alone, I, I think probably you're going to have some urges and, and he fulfilled that. And I think oh, she yeah. did care for him, but otherwise she didn't really need him, need him. And so mm-hmm. now he, she has a child and I think that will be like a great relationship for her in the future. So changed a little bit, but in the end, I think it's just, yeah, a little small arc that wasn't the best of relationships. And now he's off on his way. Yeah. Um, although I could, I could see a sequel novel to this because the the while there is an end to the story in terms of the plot here, there is not an end to the lives of the people in the novel. Um, you know, except for maybe Garnett and 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 uh, Nanny Rollins because they're very old. But you know, I could I could see a a continuation somewhere down the line of 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 different characters or another generation and picking up and picking up threads from here and seeing where they go. Um, but no, I agree with you. I don't think I, you know, he, he serves his purpose and then he goes, um, and, uh, and the, the whole, the whole section of their, their thing is, is aptly called predators, which is, you know, which is a real focus of it. And, and that, um, I don't think it's, it's binary as who's the predator and who's the prey. Mm -hmm. This isn't, you know, a Patty Smythe song, but, um, but, uh, yeah, there's, there's that aspect to it. And then I then I want to I want to move on to some of the other stories though. Uh, we have old chestnuts. Mm-hmm. So we have we have now. I want to save Lucid for the end. Um, we have old chestnuts of Nanny Rawlings and and Garnett. And Garnett's the the focus of this. Um, now the question I have, and I guess it's kind of a thing. And I guess the kind of the answer is kind of an affirmative. Are they the old chestnuts left <laughs> after a blow? Oh you know, gosh. That's, um, which is kind of kind of in that way, you know. He is trying to save something that died out years and years and years ago, but he also thinks that he needs to be alone. And this is kind of one of those things that that permeates all three plots of the novel. And you just were just talking about living in solitude. They all think they're fine living alone, and yet they all kind of crave human companionship. Um, some sort of companionship, but like the right companionship, you know? And Garnett, he's a widower. So his wife, and at one point, like he, I, there's a scene toward the end where he, uh, he's in his like closet or something and he knocks, uh, he knocks a box oh, off the yeah. shelf and his wife's hat falls out and it's just this very sad scene because he thinks about his mm-hmm. wife who died, who died quite a number of years ago. Um, and this is around the time where he realizes also that he has two grandchildren. He knew about the one. He's like, oh, there's two. And we get some of that backstory and it trickles in of, you know, who the kids are and, and who, you know, his, his, his son had, the son was kind of a 
deadbeat and you know the you know jewel had the kids and because uh, she would have been the the daughter-in-law and and now he's got two grandchildren and and at toward the end of the novel he's you know he's going to see his grandkids and then have them come over or Lucy's going to bring them over so there's again they're intersecting but they're not in this intersecting in a way that like you know all of a sudden they're all together in the big climactic scene um but like is it because he is lonely that he finally comes around to liking Nanny the way he does? Or is there something deeper there? Are these two kind of kindred spirits who not are going to fall in love with one another, but are are they destined to be uh, companions yeah. in, in a way? It's kind of like in anime. There's this thing called a, I think it's Sundere. And it's like this angry... I think it's usually the female is angry and, and hateful of the other person. And then it, 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 they, they grow closer together. But for, for this, it's, it's Garnet. I will say that this was my least favorite of the three stories. However, mm-hmm. it did crack me up a lot. So it's not like I hated it, but just of the three, yeah. I think I like this one the least. I think they are. Oh my gosh. They have biblical debates. Uh, their letters back and forth were hilarious. <laughs> Yeah, because one of them's debating um, science, or and the other one's like going pure creationism or yeah. something. <laughs> uh, Garnet calling They're her religion Bob bra burning Unitarians. Uh, all of this thing, <laughs> the snapping turtle situation, and him thinking she's talking about him when her snapper yes. was not. Yeah, it's it's crazy. I think they are kindred spirits in the sense that they both care deeply about something. And they have their viewpoints and they're able to debate. But I think once they start to warm to each other, they can have these debates and they're a bit healthier. Like, oh, I see what you're saying, but I believe this. Because initially, it's just like really vicious. And like I said, he got those goats because Nanny hates goats. That whole 4-H project was because of it. That I mean, that's pretty sick right there. I do pranks, yeah. but not to that degree. Um, and, and yeah, they are older. And I know that there are a couple times that I guess it's Nanny would, would say something about the future. And it, Garnet would, would seem forlorn. And, I mean, how much of a future do I really have? So I think they have different perspectives on what that is, but I think by the end, because it seems like he doesn't have too much hope, possibly because of losing Ellen, I think his wife's name is. But like I I think that key moment at the end, once they start to engage with each other a bit more, and I do feel like he is smitten with her, and I recognize that I'm the shipper of the two of us, so maybe it's mandatory that I say that, but the whole Scarecrow situation was a little suspect. Like He was clearly jealous, and I think he even owns that. So yeah, although and and the, I thought that was very very no absolutely actually. Um, the, there's like you know she sets up a scarecrow uh in on her farm and and he thinks it's a guy, and then he goes over <laughs> and he he's got his like rifle with him and it's like this whole thing of I was like that was actually pretty funny yeah I mean out of the three this was the one I was least interested mm-hmm. in up until maybe the end I really liked how the story ended and it might have been the scene when he finds Ellen's hat that tip me over to like I care a lot more about these two in the end than I did through most of the rest of the novel because I really felt for him there 
Um, he kind of reminds me of, and I'm blanking on the name of the character, but Ed Asner played him in Up. Oh, um, yeah. You know, yeah, because which is, I mean, I can't, I. I it's hard to get through the first, the opening of that movie, by the way. It is just like, yeah. you know, sobbing tears, uh, the opening of that movie. But, but he kind of reminds me of that, that, and, and he's, he's, you know, he's crusty and bitter and, and he's sad. Um, but the scene at the end, it's like where they hug and, and it's, it is so, it's very gentle. It's very cute. And it's, it's almost like the good, the best ending for that. And that, that I, I see a, yeah, he's kind of smitten with her, but at the same time, it is a, cause he, cause he's been going on about the fact that she like saw the UPS man was wearing shorts. So she <laughs> took her khakis and cut them off. She's he's like, he's calling them like, uh, show me shorts or like yeah, basically booty yeah. shorts or whatever. And it's like, you know, and it's just little things like that. So they, they were, they were funny. It was good comic relief among all these very kind of, you know, not serious, serious hardcore stuff, but but it was it was a nice tonal shift, um, and and like I said, it was it's just this very sweet moment at the end of their story together that I was it was just kind of like in a very awe way, awe sort of moment without being too schmaltzy or saccharine too. I, I thought King Solver knew when to not go too too sweet um, to turn us all mm-hmm. off. They got they had a hug at the end, so I think that's yeah. And that hug, I just I I thought the hug was I thought that was the best way to to have them come together like mm-hmm. that. With after all that fighting, everything that it was just that hug, and that you know it was just very very simply done. And I really really like. And I think you see like um, his demeanor change, and I think there's hope at the end too for him, even though he is older. Mm-hmm. So it's not completely yeah. like I've got one foot in the grave. So I feel like uh, that's what I see with from that story. Yeah, and I think I think the addition of the of finding the, the grandkids, um, and knowing that he's knowing that he is going to have them in his life in some capacity, is also another thing that that I think is adds a little bit of hope to the end of there for him. But let's talk about Lusa because Lusa is to me Lusa's story. As much as I thought Deanna story is really really interesting, I think I was the most invested mm. in Lusa with the whole farm, and I think it was because of the the back and forth with her, her being the outsider in the family. She married into this family. The, the the he was the one boy of all these sisters, and it's like Marietta and Jewel and a couple of other weird names, and. Um, and they all don't like her. And it's, in some cases, outward hostility, but mostly it's that passive, aggressive coldness that comes from, you're an outsider here, you're an, a usurper, an intruder, like all the things that you can think of. And the thing that really upset them was that, you know, Cole's the, the boy. Cole got the farm that they all grew up on, and he and, and Lucy were living in it. And Lucy's a city girl. Lucy, he didn't marry, you know, Kaylee Ray from high school. <laughs> he married, um, you know, he married this woman that who was announced. He was completely, you know, Landowski, you know, or like, um, so, so there's that. He marries an outsider. He takes her back to the home. They're working on it. Then he dies and she's not leaving. And it's, it, grates on them so much and it's this and it's a source of of trouble for her you know she can't sleep through the majority of the novel um partially because she's grieving her husband's death and 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 that's part of this part of this novel is about grief and and it's luce's grief it's it's garnett's grief which is 
not fully resolved as we see toward the end. And, and Deanna, I think she thinks she's grieving for her, what she could have had or who she could have been in some way, not in a very, very sad way, but there is something going on there, you know, and, and although she's more attuned to the natural cycle of things, so she's probably a little more cynical about it. Um, but with Lusa, it's, uh, it's this whole thing with her, her and her sister-in-law. She's this independent spirit. Why doesn't she leave the farm then? You're like, why stay? If you know they hate you, why not go back? Why not become an entomologist? She still reads like scientific journals and magazines. Um, at one point, she takes Crystal, who's the granddaughter, to show her a like a Luna moth mm-hmm. or something. Like, you know, she talks about bugs all the time. She really. Um, why not go back to the academic life? Why stay on the farm even though her sister-in-law, for instance, Mary Edna, is so bitter about mm-hmm. it? I think part of it is she feels like she has a duty to Cole. Uh, I don't know if that, if this is guilt-related or because, man, I I don't know what was up with that because they were one year in and they were having all those fights. Uh, so I feel like part of it was that because even during their year and their arguments, her friends were telling her to leave him and come back up. So I think she she felt some sort of debt to him. And then my other part, I think this is me placing myself in that narrative. Perhaps she's thinking, well, these people don't think I can hack it. And I'm going to hack mm. it. And she does. Like, she doesn't want yeah, to do the tobacco. And she says mm. it. And then they don't do the tobacco. Well, she's got to find another way. And she's able to really, I think, show people. She stays. Uh, she takes those kids now that there's a, now there's a legitimate um, inheritance line that I think would make them happy. So she's really able to prove herself to them. I think she's underestimated. And she stays in order to prove that. Uh, she can, she can do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think the, I understand where the, where the fights come in because they, she had been living, you know, she wasn't from around there and Cole brought her back there. So he did uproot her. Um, and that, you know, that's still going to cause tension around that. Even, even if they had just been married. Um, but yeah, I agree with you and I agree with you on the stubbornness. Which is, you know, it's funny because the stubbornness of her sisters, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's like, you know, the, what is the, the, uh, immovable object meets the unstoppable for whatever it is, uh, the saying. Um, and then, uh, you have Jewel. Now, Jewel is dying of cancer. Um, she has a late stage cancer at this point. It's inoperable and she's, she is going to die and she knows it. And she gives her two children to Jewel, not to Jewel, to Lusa. Essentially to take care of, to be their mother. Um, you know, first it's babysitting them and then, and then, uh, and she bonds with especially the girl, Crystal, uh, who she sees a lot of mm-hmm. herself in. So what is it? Like how, what motivates Jewel to give them to Lusa aside from the fact that all of her other sisters are like, yeah. you know, no, I don't want your kids. Part of it could be that. I, I think Jewel sees a kindred spirit in Lusa. I mean, their situations clear, clearly are different in how they lost their husbands, but they did 
there was loss and and I think they went through those stages of grief and there's even a conversation between the two of them about that. Um I feel like yeah besides being you know the the what shortest straw <laughs> that <Yeah. laughs> she actually enjoys being with those kids Lucy does. Um she mm. is able to get through to Crystal Chris as she goes by occasionally. Whereas everyone else, I think, uh, tease her off. And I think she shows more empathy and compassion. I think she's able to understand her more. I mean, that whole situation with the forcing her to wear a dress, which, gosh, that sounds like a nightmare from my past, too. And then was it Mary Edna or was it Lois who cuts up all the stuff and not knowing that? Yeah, I can't Yeah, remember. Crystal had made a bargain with God about, you know, I'll wear the same thing if you if you help my mom be better. So I think. Oh, God, that was that. Yeah. That made me. Yeah, it was, it was. I felt yeah. so bad for that little girl. I was like, oh, yeah. God. So I, I think it's it's almost all of the above. I think Jewel and Lusa bonded first of all of the in-laws and. I think Lusa has a great connection with those kids, and I think she understands what she needs. Lusa has gone through mourning, and I think also she's got a place in her heart for them, whereas everyone else seems really burdened by whatever Mm -hmm. else it is, either their own internal struggles or external in regards to money and all of that stuff, which Lusa has, but I don't think it as deeply affects her as as everyone else who's been living there for, for so long. And I feel like it's probably also connected with her family and her history there but i don't have i i don't think i can make like a proper analysis on that without rereading those particular sections but i feel like her history with all of that because she talks about the ghosts and she sees her grandfather's ghosts i think and, and everything else so I, I think there's something about that as well because she sees those two right on the steps all the time which is yeah. jewel and cole and then one time they're mm-hmm. solid and it's crystal and uh blanking on her yeah name. that's no good brad and her brother, I think and her brother. Yeah, like that. Yeah, and Brad, so yeah. that's a that's a big thing too. So I think it's a lot of stuff working together. Yeah. And there's uh just briefly there's a couple of questions in here, but then briefly that we'll just touch on the fact that it, it does there's this whole theme of death and revival and especially here with the this like life cycle of moths and the butterflies and things like that and emergence from cocoons, we see that through each of these characters, but really with Lusa, who is coming out of something that is traumatic, and she is finding someone in in Crystal who is also going through a similar trauma, um, even though she's a little girl, you know. And so, so, but but everything you said, like you know, I'm just trying to add to it because it was it was right on. Um, before we kind of close it out, I do want to ask. I have two more questions. Um, because there is a point where you think that King Solver is going to have her and her nephew, Rick, nephew by marriage. Oh. oh. This I know this is Appalachia, but it's nephew by nephew marriage. Yeah. Um, hook up because he had he even he confesses to having a crush on her. Uh, and they become very close because he's helping her out. He's helping her plant things. He's helping her fix things. And she and, and and I love the fact that she's like this capable woman who's just like doing you know all these things. She's she's only having him help her with like you know, and uh, and he seems like a really nice guy. He's not a he's not a skis or anything. Um, and she does flirt with him a little bit. There is something going on, but she never has him. Actually, kind of she actually rejects his advances and she keeps him. She keeps it 
like, hey, I'm your aunt. Um, did you expect an affair to begin? And uh, why do you think she turned her down? <laughs> turned him down? Gosh, yeah. Aside from the obvious, I'm your aunt. Yeah, and I know. And this is not going to go yeah, well. Yeah, he was on the cusp, yeah. and I thought, oh gosh, Lisa, I don't yeah. know. I did. I think I was thinking something would happen. Gosh, was it the milking scene or was there already stuff going on? I thought there's some weird tension here. I There's one or two scenes where they kind of sneak off to a barn yeah. and they have cigarette. They, they share a cigarette or something and, and they're, they're going through like storage rooms or something. And I'm like, I'm like, it's I thought it was going to happen. Yeah. yeah, I think. And, and I've seen this probably countless times, honestly, in different forms of media where a woman who you know, maybe abused or maybe just like emotionally distraught where, where Lisa is, you know, she's certainly in grieving will latch on to any kindness that there is, which I think she certainly does yeah. with Jewel. And then this guy, you know, is paying her attention too. And so you, you want that kindness. However, it is, is offered you. And so I thought, Oh no, this is going to happen. And <laughs> I'm glad she didn't. I think she did make a mistake by saying that she thought about it when they were on the blanket. Like she was pretty open about that. And I thought, thought you're 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 pushing something and they went dancing which that scene was off panel and we didn't get to see it but i thought that's it was a little bit of an odd yeah the fact that they were or she invited him to go dancing um i i think she was she was mixed up she was missing coal she does admit that he smelled like coal and that was a huge thing with the moths and everything and that was the last time we saw coal live too was him her his scent coming in like a like a moth mm-hmm. so i think she was kind of getting mixed up with all that and and seeking comfort in a in a particular way but i was thinking but before anything happened which it didn't happen i was making some logical well if this happens what you know what will be the result or what impact will this relationship have i think i used it correctly and it it i don't think there was any positive thing to come out of it necessarily i feel like you can only hide that sort of thing even if it was a one and done you can only hide it for so long why alienate yourself even more from a family that as far as you know doesn't like you so there are just all these negatives and i think she made a good choice even though i was feeling the shipper alert i think she made a good choice and uh yeah i you know he probably as a man with hormones i'm sure he'll regret it but they can at least be friends and i I think i hope that stuff wasn't sort of mixed up because they were good friends i'm you know and and he believed in her he kept that secret of with the goat situation so i hope there wasn't any eroticism wrapped up in that and that that was just familial and friendly and he wasn't reading it into into that yeah, I, I agree with all of that. And I'm, I'm hoping that he, perhaps she's affecting him in that he is gaining the maturity to work past whatever feelings he has of romantic or erotic feelings that he has toward her and accept her as just a, a, not only a familiar relationship, but as a, essentially a friend. Um, because I think there is a little bit of a mentorship going on there. And I would, I would hope that he changes as a result of it, that, that he matures. Um, I kind of saw it. I was like, oh, they're going to, it's going to happen. But I was very glad that it didn't happen mm-hmm. because I was rooting for her to 
have things go the way she wanted it to or, or overcome whatever conflict. And also, as much as I think King Solver would have written it well, I thought it would have been a little hack to do so. Like, it just, it, for a book that is just not your typical, there's something atypical about this book or, or the way their book is written in the style, I just think it would have been cliche. So I, I'm, I'm glad she didn't. Now, at the end of the novel, Lusa decides to take Cole's name. Is she giving up her identity? Mm. <laughs> what do you think? I think, you know, to a certain extent, yes, I, I think that's probably true mm-hmm. of anything. But I think she's also taking on something new and something mm-hmm. that's beautiful. She's being welcomed to, well, hopefully she's being welcomed into that family. She's accepting that family more than she did with Cole because I think it just seemed like it was her and Cole against the world and so now she's fully accepting that and now she has these kids so it feels like she's finally accepted who she is and and that she belongs there even though it felt like it didn't fit Mm -hmm. initially but I I think the, the way you phrase that she's accepting the family is really key I feel that she is taking them in as opposed to her working hard for them to like yeah. her. You know, like she's doing so much on her own and on her own terms. And she is, she's not, she's doing it, um, you know, out of, out of grief and of love for her husband. But at the same time, she's not doing it so that Mary Edna will approve, you know, um, she's frustrated by this relationship she has with her oldest sister-in-law, but it's not like she's sitting there like a doormat or a puppy dog, like, yo, please like me. Um, she really is. So, so there's an acceptance of them as opposed to her, them accepting. Mm-hmm. Her. So I, I agree with that. So I'm going to close out, um, with, uh, there's a question with a quote, oh. um, on your sheet. It is, Oh, she has said, uh, this novel, she's referring to prodigal summer. And this, I believe was taken for her website, um, or a discussion that she had is not exclusively or even mainly about humans. There is no main character. My agenda is to lure you into thinking about whole systems, not just individual parts. The story asks for a broader grasp of connections and interdependencies than is usual in our culture. Think about why the story's three main narrators are obsessed with what they call ghosts, extinct animals, dispossessed relatives, and the American chestnut tree. (laughs) In the networks of life described in this story, notice how the absence of a thing is as important as its presence. Notice the sentence that begins and ends the book. Solitude is only a human presumption. What do you make of this? Um, I read... Uh, what do you make of this? I also read one review where the reviewer says that King Solver is pushing an environmentalist agenda. <laughs> is she? And if she is, why is that a bad thing? So, so what question. we are talking about is that quote, solitude is only a human presumption. Yeah, yeah. I think that's true. Like right now, I'm sitting in my apartment talking to you. And so mm-hmm. I feel like I'm alone. However, you know, there could be any number of creatures crawling around near me. Thankfully, I can't see them. So I I feel like that's absolutely true. We feel like we're at the top of the food chain, which I suppose we are, though. 
I, I don't know if that's necessary, but let's just say we're, we feel like we're yeah, at the top of the for food train. Sake. And, uh, wherever we are, if we're alone, we feel like if we're, there's not another human being, we feel like we're alone. And I think that we ignore all of the other things around us. I mean, if I'm outside, there are trees there. There's grass. I'm not technically alone, mm-hmm. though there's no other human being for us. And I think if you look at, you know, even a cat or something, they, they look out of windows and see things that I don't know what they're looking at. <laughs> so they are aware. They're surveying the world they yes, rule. Yes, there you go. They, yeah, I, I'm sure that's a quote from something. Um, they are aware. Every other beast, I think, is aware. I think even, you know trees are aware as well so i i would totally agree with that as for the she's pushing an environmentalist agenda um uh, i think that's too that's like someone who's getting all that's probably an anti coyotist who's gotten all upset because he doesn't like coyotes on his ranch and wants him killed i i don't think so i mean if they were an environmental. Well, let me think about this. I'm trying to think of. But I don't think. Yeah. The thing, the thing that bugs me about that, and then I'll get back to the solitude thing, is just that I read that review and I'm like, it's politicizing something that is just to me. I'm like, but she's writing about a relationship with nature, and that you know, yeah, she's basically she is sending a message of, and she probably would tell you she's sending a message of, yeah, maybe we shouldn't kill everything. But it's that politicizing of this as being an agenda that it, 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 the review bugged me because I'm like, you're, you're not, you were not willing to read this novel. You, you saw that you were willing to read it. You saw that. And all of a sudden you, you put, you put your screen up and you, um, and, and I hate that. Uh, you know, because it's just like you're you're looking for the argument that isn't necessarily there because it you know you have talking points or something. So, um, but the solitude, yeah. And I always find it interesting that um, that people usually a lot of people, a lot of very social people talk about. Being alone as if there's something wrong with mm-hmm. it. When I tend to be very introverted anyway, and you know, I, I don't, um, this is going to sound more depressing than it is, but I don't have a lot of friends I hang out with on a regular basis. And it, it's just meaning that, like, I tend to be comfortable just, you know, being by myself. So I understand the characters in this book in, in, a, in a big way, and I understand that idea of like you know solitude being a human presumption. You know, I, you don't have to you know, kind of my you know looking at my, my own these like you don't have to have like twenty people around you all the time. You know, <laughs> but we but we have I don't know why that has become especially in especially maybe it's just in our society that idea of popularity mm. has become. Um, never really leaves you from the time you're a teenager or whatever it is. So, but beyond that, I don't really have any more points about it unless you do. No, I, I think, you know, there's something to be said about being alone versus loneliness. And, mm-hmm. you know, are you, 
Yeah, because I think we can be, I mean, this is going to get big, but biblical, of course, but being alone is not a negative thing. I mean, we see people go off. Paul, he went off. Jesus has gone off, you know, to be alone. And there's something positive and refreshing about that. Loneliness is, I think, something else entirely where you um, are perhaps it's it's like a depressive state and that is something that you should be seeking out um help for you know whether that's relational or or something like that so i feel like these people who are alone uh they're doing fine i mean lusa to a certain extent no she's going through that depressive state there is that loneliness and she gets out of it but deanne is completely fine and nanny is completely fine and garnet probably i would also say that he's in a grief stage as well so yeah all right, so our last question before we get to our feedback is, is this required reading? Um, you know what? It's funny. I went to two high schools. One was a governor's school for math and sciences, and then I would go back uh, to my home school for English and history oh, and foreign language and things like yeah. that. Humanities, I guess. And one of the classes there, I didn't take it, but it was – I remember the teacher, Mrs. Seibert. She had them read – uh, Silent Spring by Rachel Carson. And I feel oh, okay, like yeah. in general, I would say, no, this is not required reading, but I feel like any sort of environmentalist or environmental science course, that would be something that you would read Rachel Carson, like absolutely mm-hmm. have this as well, because I think it has merits not only with the characters, but there's so much nature involved as well and dealt with in a fascinating and not boring manner. So that's how I would use it. Yeah, this is a great paired text for for a nonfiction piece like Rachel Carson's Silent Spring. Um, I was thinking about how uh, th- there's there's that aspect of you know when I think of you know is this required reading and I t- sometimes I extend that in my head to you know would I teach this and I don't think I would teach it because the I don't think I would have really gotten this if I had read this in my in my teens or my twenties. It is very much. Um, the world has lived in, the characters have lived, and I feel that I appreciated it because I've lived. I mean, I haven't had the most exciting life in the world, but I, but I have more experience in the world than I did when I was, when this came out. I was 23 when it came out. So, um, and I may have liked it, but I don't think I would have really have enjoyed it as much as I did. So, um, and I hate to be, and I hate to be one of those people saying, well, you can read this when you're old enough. But at the same time, I think that does speak true to a number of novels. So as whereas a, you know, a student might, might appreciate it, might appreciate the, the scientific aspects of it and stuff like that. I think that if you're somebody who is in their thirties or forties or whatever, um, there's a deeper appreciation you can get for it. So, uh, I think, I think in that aspect it is. Okay. We have some feedback. First is, from the Twitters. Is this the first time we've doing Twitter feedback? I just happened to notice it when I was slipping through the Twitter feed the other day. Oh, okay. um, so I thought, and it was, it was an outright comment as opposed to just like a like or share. Gotcha. So. so Joe Crawford says, really great episode. This is regarding episode 42. 
My intro to the novel was the BBC series, which ran on our PBS after Doctor Who. What? I've been a fan ever since. Glad you both enjoyed it. BTW, you know some kid out there is probably writing the world's world's worst poetry. And I had replied, and this was um, I, I, I misplaced this in the document. It should be right below this. That I had replied to him. I set the bar for that in high school, and it has yet to be cleared. So. <laughs> and those were about the Hitchhiker's Guide. His if guide you didn't remember, yeah, what forty two was. And then Facebook comment from Robert Ward. He says, "I have just." Over two hours left on my audiobook before I finish it. It was a first time read for me, although I had seen the film once before. Rewatching the film and listening to the book, however, it's been really good. I'm glad it was picked and compelled to have me read. Mm, to compelled so, to have me read? Me. Yeah. Yeah. And then on the Green Mile, uh, which was last episode, we have an email from podcasters <gasps> Michael Bailey, uh, Stella, and Tom. I've been listening to – he did that on purpose, by the well, way. That's the way um, it should have been. I've been listening to your discussion on the Green Mile, and I wanted to touch on a few – I wanted to touch on a few of the points you made during the course of the episode. At one point, you both discussed how much of an author's life experiences end up in their work. This was weird because I've been fascinated as of late by the concept of the death of the author. As you probably know, but in the case in case the audience doesn't, death of the author is a literary theory explored by Roland Barthes in his essay of the same name, which pushes back against traditional literary criticism's practice of incorporating the intentions and biographical context of an author in an interpretation of a text, and instead argues that writing and creator are unrelated. I'm not sure I buy into this theory, but literary criticism is, by its nature, always up for debate, so it's a fun rabbit hole to go down. I'm going to interject here and say that I agree with Mike. Um, Anyway, to dance back into the email, to dance around this concept with Stephen King, a lot of his writing is influenced by real-life events, whether it is his own battle with substance abuse, like The Shining, or seeing the body of a dead kid, the body which um, most moviegoers would know as Stand By Me. Does this make the writing itself better because you know about it, or should it be completely disregarded and have the work stand as an independent entity? And does this play into the magical Negro trope that you discussed? Was there some figure in King's background that inspired this in both The Shining and The Green Mile, and does that negate the idea that it's part of the trope? My initial reaction to say is to say yes, but I push back at the death of the author in terms of critical analysis. Anyway, Tom said that King should have known better by 1996. This is regarding the magical Negro. And I tend to disagree. Bad tropes are bad no matter the era, but social acceptance is another beast altogether. And I know people of Tom and my generation love to think we grew up in an era of social and moral superiority. The truth is we still had a long way to go. And I am going to interject and say yes, he is very right here. Watch most of the sitcoms of the era for examples of this, looking at you, especially Friends. Yeah, I don't know if we brought this up when we talked about Friends on Pop Culture Affidavit a couple of years. Oh, God, it's like four years ago by now. Friends has a lot of, like, gay panic jokes in a sense. Like, there's a lot of very uh, kind of, like, homophobic punchlines in Friends. You know, the you might be gay type of stuff that was very acceptable in the 90s but totally wouldn't fly now. 
back into the emo. This sort of thing was perfectly acceptable in literature in the 90s, so expect King to be above all that, maybe expecting more than we should. I get that Tom hates the trope and that it colored his perceptions of the story, but I read this as it came out in 1996, and that idea never occurred to me as I read it. I looked at Coffee's character as a way for King to talk about racism in the early 20th century and how even if they had managed to convince everyone that he had special powers, the world would still have wanted him dead because he was black. There would never have been an acceptance, and you can't do that with a white character. I'm not saying that magical Negro trope doesn't exist and that it doesn't come into play here, but I'm not seeing it as the negative that Tom is. Great episode as always. I'm a fan of this book and the film, so this was one I had to listen to right away. Keep up the great work. Mike. Um, you can find Mike over at the Fortress of Bailey Tude Podcasting Network, by the way. He has uh, over in the Dark Knight, uh, it all comes back to Superman. Um, his backlog of views from the long box is all great from crisis to crisis. Um, I don't have much to say to add to this. I, I really uh, think he has some great points in here, especially about, you know, the tendency of, uh, um, he is right. There are a lot of tropes that, um, today are just, you know, looked at as absolutely terrible that were still socially acceptable back in literature of the nineties. Um, so kind of considering that in that context, and I, I think the death of the author is is really worth looking at because there are times when I can totally see where I totally think that the author being part of the novel in that way benefits the novel, like the bell jar, for instance. And then there are times when couldn't care less about the author's background when writing that, you know. So, so I think I think it could go either way, and it's almost like we can we can look at that death of the author concept with maybe on an individual or a or a but not on a broad basis, but on a more specific basis. Um, you have any thoughts on this before we close? I out? don't know. Okay. Well, thanks for emailing in, Mike. It's uh, it's always nice to it's it's nice to hear. I don't think he's I don't know if if he has emailed to us before. It's been a long time since he's emailed us, and uh, but I do appreciate uh, getting that and the support. And, and thank you, Robert and uh, and Iowa's Joe for the comments. You can always uh, you know give us feedback, etc. And before we leave, I have one more question for you. What are we reading next month? Another story time for me. So there I was without any books for several months. I was in a dry spell. I had to use the Kindle, which I don't really like as much unless there's Mm -hmm. for comics and things like that. And then Miracle of Miracles, the library kind of opens up. You can do (laughs) drive-thru. So then I'm in a bit of a panic, I think. I should probably put on hold all the books that I know I can get off of my reading list before something terrible happens again. So I have 13 books on hold all at once. I'm getting emails, you know, as they're in transit because I wasn't sure if they were actually moving from one library to another. So I just thought I better I'll just do it. So I get up to nine and I wait in line for a bit and then it takes two people to get all of the books. And at one point I do apologize. I'm like, I'm so sorry. And she said, no, we want you to read. So she is very gracious. So then I took a picture, which is on my Instagram, and I sent it to various people. Uh, someone, a couple of people said, like, how long did, did you expect that to, you know, last? Things like that. So I've got this tower of books that I'm whittling down and I feel 
feel like I need to pick from there. So I was just looking at the titles. Some of them actually, Tom, you had mentioned, but I picked up mm. one by an author that I feel like if I do it now, then I will not be forced to read another book that he did that I did not care for. But on the back, it seemed like an interesting blurb. So I actually am recommending something that I have no idea what it's about besides the back of the book. It is going to be Galapagos, Galapagos, Galapagos by Kurt Vonnegut. Hello? When you said another book I didn't care for, I knew you were talking about Kurt Vonnegut, and the book that you don't care for, I know for a fact, is Slaughterhouse Yes, Five. it is. So I feel like um, if I get him, if we do him now, maybe you won't pick the other one, but, you know, we have done multi-authors. But this sounds interesting. It takes place in AD 1986, and that was when I was born. It sounds kind right. of weird. So, I mean, we'll see. I, I might be apologizing to you later, but it's on my stack, and I need to read it. So now we're going to read it together. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, so you can come back in a month for that. But before you do, don't forget to check out the next episode of Pop Culture Affidavit, which should drop a week after this one does. Stella is going to be on my show. <gasps> We're going to be talking about Paper Girls. Um, really, really looking forward to, to uh, seeing that come out and see what you all think of that. And uh, don't forget to send us feedback, email, Twitter, Facebook, all those things. Um, we love getting it and we love hearing it and we love responding to it and until next time thank you very much for listening and take and care and just because Fabio's not on the cover doesn't mean you aren't reading a romance novel <laughs> oh. oh Thomas I can't believe it's not better oh, yeah. good night reminds me of those listening to Required Reading with Tom and Stella, which is brought to you by two true freaks. That's two true freaks. If you're interested in learning more about the books we've read or want to comment on the episode, follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash required reading with Tom and Stella. If you would like to email us to comment on the episode or continue our discussion, you can reach us at requiredreadingcast at gmail.com we will read every email we get on future episodes. We're looking for more visibility, so if you liked this episode or the show in general, why not leave us a review on iTunes? If you're interested in following along with the books we read, you can do that and support us at the same time. Just go to twotruefreaks.com, click the Amazon.com link. Every purchase you make will go to support us and the other TTF podcasts. It costs you nothing extra, but it really helps us out. Thanks again for listening and come back next month for our next episode.